weekends sure look a lot different in the era of COVID-19. But last night, Amanda, her sister, her sister's boyfriend, and two of her cousins, all of us got onto a Zoom call and over the course of three hours had a lot of drinks and a lot of laughs. I was particularly intrigued talking to Amanda's sister, Heather, because she was starting a new job in just a couple days after things didn't go very well in the coronavirus job market for her last position. And so I gave her a call and we talked it all over and she has a fascinating backstory in the music industry business end of things. And so I hope you enjoy it. I really wish I had asked if I could use one of the songs that she made when she was in a punk band in high school. But when we get our next time, I'll make that happen. So we have music as always by Matthias DeWild and enjoy the following conversation. Hello. Heather. What up? What's going on? Not a whole lot. I'm just going to get myself to a nice, quiet place so that I can talk to you. How are you doing? I am struggling a little bit after last night. Really? We did have a good time. That was the single longest Zoom-style call I've been on. It was fun, though. Kazonis. Isn't this like your dream? It was my dream to party over a internet connection with Amanda, her sister, her, her two cousins, and Carlos thrown in for good measure. Exactly. It's the best group possible. It really, especially after a drink or two, it really felt like <laughs> we were in the same room. Like the... Yeah. The digital component of it, the virtual component of it, melted away um, on beer number three and a half. Exactly. And then it was just a good, proper hang. And then it was just a good, proper hang. And we were... We were celebrating, and there was a reason why we were celebrating. Yes, absolutely. Because you are starting a new job on Tuesday. I am. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey from early March when you were in <laughs> month eight or nine of your uh, now old new job to... Right. To what what's happening uh, with your onboarding Tuesday Tuesday morning? Yeah, um, so it has been a journey. Um, so in June of last year, I left a previous job of about four years to start a new job at an events company, live events, live music, and uh, that was going great for. Um, how long was it? Yeah, about nine months. And then March happened. Um, and we stopped going to work, of course, just like everyone else. Um, pretty early. I live in the Bay Area. So pretty early March. Um, we all stopped 
going anywhere that wasn't our homes. And um, I think we worked from home for three or four weeks. And then the company uh, laid off half of its employees. Um, The fact of the matter is nowhere on earth is still hosting live events. And for a live events company, that is a pretty tough pill to swallow. So um, in a, I guess, inevitable, but nonetheless surprising move, uh, a bunch of us lost our jobs uh, all at once. And so uh, in the first week of April, that happened, uh, which was pretty shocking and um, pretty scary given the time right now. You know, it obviously opens up all kinds of questions about how are you going to make money? How are you, how long is, you know, quarantine going to last? Are companies still hiring? Is, are you, is, are so many people going to be out of work that jobs are impossible to get because, you know, companies aren't hiring and there's not enough jobs for all of the people and living in such an expensive place, uh, that's obviously pretty scary. So um, I got laid off on a Wednesday and I spent the Thursday and Friday um, kind of on an emotional roller coaster. You know, on the Thursday I woke up and I was like, all right, I'm going to kick this in the ass. I'm going to have a new job by the time this is all over. I'm going to get it done. And I was feeling really uh, optimistic and motivated. And uh, Friday, the Friday, the next day, was the exact opposite of that. I was 100% positive that I would never get a job again. And uh, my boyfriend and I were going to have to move out of our apartment because we were going to be poor and it was going to be a a terrible nightmare. Um, But I didn't have to live in the nightmare for too, too long uh, because on Saturday, the next day, uh, a person who I have been working with um, for a nonprofit for the last four years um, reached out to me because he went from running day-to-day operations of the nonprofit to uh, just being on the board of directors uh, in the fall and a few months ago took a job at a new company. And so he reached out to me to let me know that his new company might be interested in making a job for me, making a space for me. Um, And so we actually were able to figure that out. So uh, it went very, very quickly. That was only less than three weeks ago that uh, we were having those conversations. And here I am starting on Tuesday. That really is a remarkable journey. A couple things I want to dive into. If if I'm getting the timeline correctly, um, you were laid off on a Wednesday. And then on that Thursday, you were feeling motivated and you were thinking to yourself, now I'm going to go out and get a job. I'm curious about your confidence in that regard because I think when I first heard from Amanda about your situation I was like how is Heather going to get a job in this environment it's the record num- record numbers record levels of people mm-hmm. filing for unemployment which you did file for unemployment did you not I did yes and and so I'm I, I would like to investigate the the psychological resilience that I see as being part and parcel of the confidence that led you to the belief and then the actualization of that belief of you being able to acquire employment in perhaps the single toughest job market of uh, the last, I don't know, 90 years? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of factors that went into that. Um, the first one, I think, was just denial about the situation. You know, I was uh, feeling really good at my job up until the, you know, day I got laid off. Um, and so I was feeling like I am good at working and I'll just be good at working somewhere else. So there's a little bit of denial going on there. And they're also, honestly, uh, I have been very good at working historically. Um, I've, you know, I think a lot of people are oddly gifted at different elements of their life. You know, some people uh, have always had really great romantic relationships or some people have always been really lucky with, you know, figuring out great living situations or whatever it is. But You have a uh, funny friend I, and you have the responsible friend and you have the friend that's... Right. Always, yeah, I, 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 I totally get that. Yeah, the, 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 everybody has like their thing that they're just charmed at. And honestly, I think that mine so far in my adult life has been my career. I've cool. always sort of found myself in good working situations. And I think part of it is determination. And I think part of it is luck. And I think part of it is that for some reason, for me, mentally, getting and doing jobs doesn't feel as hard as other things in life. Um, so take that however you will, psychologically or whatever. But uh, I just had that, I just had some confidence on day one. And like I said, it came crashing down on day two, but um, came back a little bit on day three. So um, I, I, I can't really explain it further than that. I've just always felt like jobs aren't as hard as other things in my life. And if I remember correctly, a bunch of people reached out to you on the Wednesday of the layoff and this continued into Thursday. I mean, we're talking about upwards of like 15 or 20 people just being like, Hey, I heard about the layoffs at your company. Um, how are you doing? And is there anything I can do to help? Um, so yes and no, uh, only a couple people reached out to me out of the blue and it was mostly people who are also kind of in the, uh, Bay Area tech space who were sort of in the know about what was happening. But I did, you know, I posted on my socials um, that day and I did get a incredibly heartwarming response from people from previous jobs, from previous cities that I've lived in, even back to, you know, high school and growing up, like a lot of people reaching out and saying like, oh, my company's hiring or like I found this list of companies that are still hiring That's or so cool. like, let me know if you want me to look at your resume. I mean, just it, it was it was really heartening to see so much support coming from so many different corners of my life and my past experiences. And that definitely helped. And, you know, one of the people who did sort of cold email me because I hadn't emailed him yet was the person who kind of led to me ending up getting hired, um, which was extremely clutch. <laughs> it's, it is pretty remarkable. And I think that it dovetails with what you said about the fact that you've been charmed in a professional sense. And so mm -hmm. what I'd like, if you have the time and the interest is to take a look back at your professional history. Sure. I would be happy to do that. What was your um, first job? Like ever, ever, or my first job? Ever, ever. Gonna, you know, 
What was ever, the ever. first thing you got paid to do? Um, gymnastics classes. I was definitely too young to legally be working, but when I was a you know early to mid teenager, I I did gymnastics my whole life growing up, and so I had a you know almost familial relationship with the people who owned my gymnastics gym. I had known them since I was a baby. And uh, I lived at my gym probably an equal amount of time that I lived at my house. Um, so starting from when I was pretty young, I would help teach little kid um, gymnastics classes or birthday parties. And that as I got older and could, you know, be an actual real employee, I started having um, you know, like regular classes that I would teach rather than just stepping in or subbing or doing one-off events. Um, and then my first job that wasn't that was at a smoothie place at a, a, in my at, town. I'm that so sorry, place. at a what place? A smoothie place. A smoothie place. What was the name of the smoothie place? Yeah. Uh, it was called Robex. Nice. It's a chain. Um, my sister also worked there. Um, and uh, what did I do after? I think after Robex. Oh, right. And after work, Robex, I worked at the little girl's clothing store, Justice. Mm. Uh, which was which was fun. Was and it just us or was it justice? Justice, like justice for all. That is a interesting brand name for a little girl's clothing store. Yeah, it's it had been limited to, and then it turned into justice. Um, interesting. And I think I worked there kind of right at that point of rebranding. And. I'm curious, did you really enjoy working even at that age? Did you have like a taste for like having your own paycheck? Was there inordinate pride? Because I can remember back to high school and how much I hated working, but I had friends that maybe weren't at, as good at school as I was. I was kind of a, a, a grade star. I got good grades, but I had friends mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. were like going to Costco and getting huge things of gummy worms, repackaging them and selling them. In sixth or seventh right. grade, they had that entrepreneurial spirit. They enjoyed having a little bit of spending money in their pocket. Was that was that you? Yeah, I mean, I loved working at the gym, and I think a lot of that came from how close I was to everybody there, and how I kind of felt like I had, you know, some sense of belonging at that gym as an organization. Um, the smoothie place I didn't super care about, but I had a lot of friends who worked there, so that was fun. Um, I worked at Justice because I really needed to get some money before college, and I had some of my gymnastics friends who worked there. So um, I guess I, I did always like being in a work situation where, you know, I liked who I was with, and I was usually, I mean, in the, when I was in high school, I was always working with friends, and I liked elements of jobs. I mean, working in retail is is not necessarily the most fun thing in the world, but the handful of retail jobs I've had, I think, always had a certain element of fun. Because, um, you know, at, at Justice, the part that I actually enjoyed was we would do birthday parties there. And I always liked kind of leading the birthday parties with all the little children. Um, and in college, and my sister will always make fun of me, but I worked at Lush. I, I worked at a Lush store. I don't even know what Lush I mean, is. It's a like natural handmade cosmetics store. So it's all the soaps and the bath bombs and the skincare and the hair care and 
all of the memes on the internet about Lush are completely true. <laughs> it's like a very enthusiastic place. Why did Amanda make fun of you for that? You should look up the memes a little bit. It's it's very like when you walk into Lush, every person who works there is like, "Hi, how are you? How are you feeling today? What can we help you with? Would you like a hand massage while you tell me about your day?" Like it's <laughs> it's like that. <laughs> it's like very much like that and so my sister always had a joke about you know please tell me more about soap (laughs) because i just talk about soap forever (laughs) i I mean look soap in 2020 is more important than ever so you you were lucky exactly i was ahead of the curve (laughs) you were very ahead of the curve and now you are well positioned to help flatten the curve yeah yeah i'm so clean so you go off to college and you were were you a music major, a music business, music business major? Because you were at the you, you were University of Miami has one of the best uh, music programs in the country, right? Yeah. So uh, University of Miami Frost School of Music, and I was a music business and entertainment industries major with a marketing minor. Um, but the music industry degree is in the music school, so you have to have you basically have the course load of a performance major for the first two years, give or take. And then in your last two years, you still do some of the music curriculum, but that's when your you know, music business curriculum comes more into play. So for those first couple of years, if I was a, a classical voice principal instrument. So for the first couple of years, it's all about your private lessons, your training, music theory, musicology, ensemble classes, um, things like that, like the straight up music. And oh, and you also have to take piano and all these things. And then as you get into your later years, that's when you start doing um, like recording industry contracts and artist management and music marketing and all those all those types of classes that are industry specific, but um, teaching about the actual business of, of the music industry. And looking back now with a few years uh, separating uh, your time there, was it important for you to take those actual music class classes, the voice lessons, the piano, did that inform in a beneficial way which you then ended up learning in the more business-oriented classes? You know, it's an interesting question. I think in in a sort of uh, unexpected way, yes, because there is a certain amount of credibility that comes with actually knowing about music that you can't necessarily fake. And obviously, you know, 98 maybe not that high, but a high percentage of people working in the music industry have not taken any sort of classical training, um, at least not in a, in a serious way. 98 is obviously way too high. It's probably like 60. But uh, a, a significant portion of music industry professionals are not classically trained musicians. But it is helpful at times to be able to speak, especially if you're speaking with artists, you know, if you're working with artists, it's helpful to be able to have an educated musical conversation with them. And I I don't manage artists anymore. I did for a while, but I think it made them trust me more that they could play me, you know, rough recording or a demo of something that they were working on and they could ask my opinion and I could give them actual musical feedback. You know, that was 
great. That was a great way to interact with my artists. When you were growing up in Virginia and then in high school, what did you, what did you want to be when you were all growing up? Like it takes a lot of thought and consideration to apply to a program like Frost. And what was young Heather, what were her dreams um, back when she was 17 and 18? Yeah, a good question. And I think this kind of speaks to what I was getting at before um, with having a lucky strike in me about job stuff. Because when I was very young, I wanted to be a veterinarian (laughs) and I wanted to go into something more scientific. Um, So I, every other day in high school, I went to a magnet school for math and science. So I only went to a normal high school every other day. and throughout high school, up through the point where I was applying to college, I wanted to go to film school and I wanted to work in the film industry. And I was applying to film schools. I got into a couple film schools. I was 100% planning on doing that. And when I was applying to USC for film, which is, you know, obviously a much higher caliber film school than some. I realized that the requirements for the application seemed annoying to me. You know, I didn't want to write a nine page script. I wasn't trying to be a script writer and I didn't want to do that. And so I was kind of like, okay, if I don't want to do the application, I probably don't actually want to go to film school. So, and mind you, this is like during the college application process. Um, And I realized that, you know, for, most of high school, so like the last three years of high school, I was in rock bands with my friends. And I liked being in a band, but I also liked managing my band. You know, I liked booking the shows. I liked doing the merch. I liked all of the behind the scenes stuff. And I don't, I can't tell you exactly when this pivot happened or what inspired it specifically, but halfway through applying to college, I dramatically took a left turn and started applying to music school instead. And I, um, even in that process, I got so far as to having my deposit in at Drexel in Philadelphia to go to their music industry program. I forgot what it was called, but their music industry program. And then uh, last minute changed my mind decided to go to Frost in Miami. And I think that was an amazing decision. And it was all made on kind of these gut reactions of film school's not right for me. I'm going to try music. And then Drexel kind of felt right. But I happened, my family was in Miami during spring break of my senior year. And this was after I had already committed to Drexel. But we kind of swung by the school and did a tour. And I was like, well, shit, now I have to go here. So I changed my mind at the last minute. I went to Miami got started on the path that I'm on and it worked out excellently in my opinion. I am somewhat familiar with your sister's path to Fordham at Lincoln Center and Mm -hmm. your father's not reluctance but his uh, very strong preference to have her go to VCU. Was there any pushback from Mr. Ellis uh, when you were applying out of state? 
Um, I think I really benefited from being the second child um, on this one. My sister's college application process was much more intense than mine. Um, She, you know, she was also going for acting and there's so much when you're, when you're going into an education with the intention of being a performer on the other side, I feel like there is a higher degree of nuance about like exactly what kind of program you're going to. And my dad for my sister felt strongly that he wanted her to have a more well-rounded education. So I think I benefited on one hand from being the second child, we're just applying to college seemed less scary. So whereas my sister applied to, I think nine schools, I only applied to four. And, um, I think I also got off a little bit easier because I was always going into this with the intention of working on the business side mm-hmm. of what end, whatever industry I was in. You know, even when I was applying to film school, it wasn't because I wanted to be an actor or because I wanted to be something creative. I wanted to work in the in the business side. And I think that was a little bit more comforting for my parents. That makes a lot of sense. And so you show up to Miami fall of your freshman year and you're taking a lot of performance style classes and learning about the music did you at what point did you start looking into internships for that first Mm -hmm. summer um so yeah i started looking for work experience pretty much immediately um i started working at my school's record label uh when did i do i started working at the record label actually i think my sophomore year but i started volunteering at the events my freshman year and ever since high school, I had my eye on this one artist management company called Crush Music. Um, they managed all of the like little pop punk bands that I loved when I was 15. Cool. And so my freshman year, I emailed them to see if I could be their summer intern, but I emailed them too late. And so they said, you know, you have to try again next year. We're all booked up. So um, summer after my freshman year, I just went home and worked at a restaurant to save some money and do all of that. But then sophomore year is when I properly started working at my school's record label. And that summer I did intern at Crush. I emailed them on like January 3rd, like a psycho and was like, hi, I want to be your summer intern. Mm-hmm. And they were like, you are months too early this time, but we'll email you when it's actually time. Um, so I did manage to get that internship. Um, so I lived in New York for the summer after my sophomore year. I was poor as hell but I interned at my, you know, dream artist management company. So that was pretty neat. Um, and then while I was in New York doing that internship, I also got a position with Sony Music, uh, so major label, as a Sony Music college marketing rep. Uh, so that, so I, for my last two years of college, was the marketing rep for Sony down in Miami, which basically was it's kind of like a glorified street team. You do a lot of like simple uh, guerrilla marketing for different releases coming out. And then you do a lot of tour reports. So I got to go to a lot of shows for free. Um, But while I was there, I would like, you know, pass out stickers and write up a little bit, a little report about who was there and what was the venue like and how was the show, you know, it's just little. That's a cool job. (laughs) Yeah, it was a very cool job. And it, led me to um, immediately after graduation, I moved straight up to New York and I got a 
kind of like a fellowship program at Columbia Records, which is part of Sony. Um, it's called their Big Red program. It's basically like a three-month digital marketing intensive internship. So it's not just like, you know, you're somebody's assistant and you're at their beck and call. It's more like you have three months, you're assigned a project and you complete the project throughout the course of the summer. Do you remember what your project what was? Right after um, kind of. It was, um, I worked on the team within Columbia Records that um, focused on like frontline new releases that were kind of directed towards the mainstream. It's hard to explain without going deeply into it, but I worked on bigger releases coming out of Columbia. And my project was to sort of study virality. It was kind of the beginning of the meme era at the time. And there was no TikTok. I don't think Instagram had videos yet. And it was just on the cusp of like artists would blow up because one song ended up in a meme or which at the time was mostly popular YouTube videos. And uh, my job was to sort of dig into the, the songs and the artists that that happened to and try to figure out why and how, and can that virality be, uh, can that virality be manufactured, uh, which was interesting and hard and, um, still somewhat elusive <laughs> it certainly is but whoever decodes that virality is going to make a lot of money yeah and now you know you see companies like tiktok that have music industry professionals they have industry relations in-house you know they, they work with the music industry in a way that companies didn't at, at that time when I was working on that project. And so you finished that project for the summer and what is your, your next stop professionally? Yeah. So this is kind of where that, that quality comes back again, because I finished my internship. It was, you know, August and I had like $13 in my bank account and I was trying to get a job at Sony and I was working closely with HR and the HR rep that I was working with, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the HR rep I was working with basically sat me down after several conversations and just said, like, look, if you really want to work here, I can find a job for you, but you won't like it. It will be like, you know, a, an assistant in the finance department or something like that. So if you can sit tight for a couple of weeks, there might be new positions that are more interesting to you. But right now, I don't really have anything. So I was like, no, I don't want to be a finance assistant because I don't hate myself and I'm just going to try to figure something else out. So it's the last week of my internship. I had, or my, whatever it was called, we'll call it an internship. Fellowship. I have a fellowship, sure. I have no money and no prospects and I'm desperately trying to figure something out. And a college friend of mine who I met because we both worked at my school's record label Facebook messages me out of the blue. We haven't talked in probably two years. And it's just like, hey, do you, are you looking for a job in New York right now? And I was like, I actually am. And he was like, great, because my department at the Orchard needs a coordinator, and I think he'd be good for it. So the Orchard is an independent music distribution company um, that I didn't know much about at the time, but this person highly recommended it, and beggars can't be choosers, so I applied for the role of retail marketing coordinator. 
and ended up getting it, which was amazing. Um, but retail marketing is super boring. It's basically um, at a music distributor, you're basically serving the role of being the connective tissue between these little independent record labels and the big streaming services. So this was about two years after Spotify came to the U.S., we were still working really heavily with iTunes, like downloads on iTunes. At the time, um, we worked with Amazon. That seems Amazon. so long ago now. I know. It seems archaic. But that's what we were working on. And as the coordinator for this department, like half of my job was taking screenshots of the iTunes store to show what placement all of our records got. It was mind-numbing. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I took those screenshots to the best of my ability and I had a really incredible boss. She was just this absolute badass. And about eight months into the uh, role, uh, the person who I knew from school and our awesome boss kind of pulled me aside and were like, Hey, you know, we want you to stay here forever, but there's a job opening up in the interactive marketing department. And we think you would like that better. So if you're interested you know, we like encourage you to spread your wings and fly to the other side of the office. So I did that. I made that move over to interactive marketing, which was so much more fun. Um, that role is effectively creating the marketing campaigns around a new record release for anything that involves artist and fan interaction. So it wasn't like paid advertising or anything like that, but it was social media and contests and giveaways and tour marketing and like anything interactive between the artist and the fan. Um, so I had a lot of fun doing that, but uh, that wasn't desperately difficult. So in order to occupy the rest of my brain, I went ahead and started a little company. Uh, it's called Red Dust Music. Cool. And that was... How did you uh, come to that management. title for the company, that name for the your brand? Oh, God. I hate answering that question. Um, I hate naming things. And so do I. It's so I hard. Of, it's so hard. And like, I feel like everything that I think of is like weirdly embarrassing. Like, it's not cool. I can't think of anything cool. Like some people just effortlessly can think of awesome names. I know. I, like even when I'm on like a trivia team and they're like, what should we be called? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know. So the name for my company is not cool. It's both of my, my first name and middle name are both flowers. And so I was trying to think of flower words. And so red dust is like a lame allusion to, to like flower, like pollen. <laughs> I think it's totally like fine. You... I don't think it's lame at all. <laughs> and and I don't know. <laughs> red dust is both specific enough and vague enough that I think it finds that happy medium. And it sounds, it's, I mean, it was interesting enough for me to want to know the background and I, I think I would say job well done. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, a lot of people assume that it's either somehow referring to Mars or a lot of people uh, have asked me if it's like a drug reference, but I don't even <laughs> know what drug it would be referencing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because angel dust is obviously a drug. I think PCP, right? And so, and the intersection of drug culture and music culture that Venn diagram is uh, almost, almost not complete, but concentric circle esque. Right. So, so I can, you can I can understand see what, why someone would ask. Yeah. 
But yeah. no, I think I say I say solid branding. I have to do a rebrand myself because I think Corona Convos has reached its. Um, it did what it needed to do in terms of mm-hmm. getting me started in this endeavor. But once I hit about a hundred of these interviews, that will be a, a pro- an appropriate time to think about how I want to uh, frame these podcasts going forward. So if you have any red dust level inspirations don't hesitate to dm me literally not at all (laughs) (laughs) i i would love to help you but i hate naming things and i would have to spend like you know a few weeks thinking about this that just gives me anxiety i might just outsource it to your sister who's actually uh, yeah she's so good at those sorts of things but i digress you you were enjoying this these kind of marketing partnerships with fan artist uh, synergies, but it wasn't necessarily occupying a huge swath of your brain space. And so in your free time, you founded and launched Red Dust Music. Yes. And And let's hear a little bit about uh, your artists and what you were able to do for them. Sure. Yeah. So I was really focusing on really, really early artist development for a handful of artists on the East Coast, a couple in Virginia, one was in Philly. Um, I worked with some artists in New York some of the time. Um, And I was really just helping these artists get on their feet. You know, it was a, a lot of, oh, sorry, all of the horns. I was helping these artists get on their feet. It was a lot of Um, like helping them establish their web presence, helping them get together a social strategy, helping them release their first album or their first couple singles. Like it was really, really early work. But what I think a lot of artists struggle with when they're on their own, they don't have a team, they don't have very much budget to work with things. It's hard to know where to start and how to get your footing. So I was really helping the artists on my roster just get, properly established. And then since I was working at a music distribution company, I also was their label and I helped them get their music properly distributed. And I think that's probably one of the most valuable aspects of what I could do for them because it helps immensely when you're trying to get something like a publicist or you're trying to put together a partnership and get a little bit of attention. It really helps the artist to be able to say like, this is my label representation um, because I also, you know, I was a very friendly label. I wasn't, I was like, you know, taking all their money and screwing them over. I was literally just adding a little layer of legitimacy and helping them get set up. So to this day, that's the part of Red Dust that's still operating. I'm not doing day-to-day artist management anymore, but I am still releasing music. That's awesome. And you know, as an, an extended footnote, can you kind of give us the Wikipedia entry for Red Dust in addition to what you've already told us? Like, you've told us about the founding, how which, what you did, but what happened in those intervening years? Are there any great successes um, oh. or, or things of note? 
Honestly, not really. It was a pretty quiet company. It is a pretty quiet company. I, um, not really. I mean, I think probably the biggest thing I pulled off is I, I partnered with a studio. A crazy sound just happened. Um, I partnered with a studio in Brooklyn called The End for my one-year anniversary party, and I got all of my artists to come, and I threw a big industry party on the roof, and I actually had, like, a pretty legit turnout of industry people come and meet my artists face-to-face, and one of my artists debuted a new release at the party, and that was probably, like, the biggest flash best thing that I did for my artists at Red Dust, but, um, you know, I think at this like looking back on that time, you know, starting a company as like a 23 year old who didn't know anything. Um, I think, you know, I helped my artists, my cool. small little roster, I think left my service better than they came to it. But, you know, nobody's, nobody's wildly famous now, but they are all still making music. And one band in particular is making, you know, pretty much a career off of it. So that's heartwarming. Aaron and the Wildfire. Aaron and the Wildfire. Did you ever have Aaron any... and the Wildfire. Were there ever any, ever any grand ambitions for for this? And yeah. <laughs> what if if the ambitions at one point were grand? Um, what eventually tempered them into uh, the more modest output that still stands today? Yeah, great and intense question. Um, yes, there. I mean, I definitely started it thinking you know, this is going to become my full-time job. This label is going to be, you know, my like long-term foothold in the industry. I'm going to grow my roster. I'm going to eventually have employees. Like I definitely started it with the intention of it being huge. But the fact of the matter is I was a 23-year-old living paycheck to paycheck and had no help. (laughs) So... I, you know, I think for as ambitious as I was, I wasn't willing to like, you know, become homeless to make that happen. And I wasn't willing to put any more money in it than I, I mean, all things said and done, by the time I stopped managing artists, I think it cost me about $2,500. So, uh, you know, I, I think for that particular dream, I just didn't really have the capital you know, starting something is hard and especially starting a creative endeavor where most of your projects are going to clock, clock in at a loss. It's hard to see that through when you have, you know, single digits in the bank. I think my ignorance is going to betray me in this next question, but what would more capital have allowed you to do with Red Dust's impact? Yeah. Um, well, there are some pretty basic things that capital would help me do. Like it would help me support my artists in recording more music. You know, mm. studio time is really expensive. Engineers and mastering and making physical copies of your music, like CDs or vinyl, is expensive. And since I had no money, we had to rely on, you know, I mean, I, I invested as much as I possibly could, but it was next to nothing. So we have to rely on the amount of money that my artists could raise. And I mean, we're talking like, you know, Kickstarters and GoFundMes. So that's one. And then marketing music can be extremely expensive. I mean, signing to an established label, you're mostly signing to them for the marketing money. And 
when you don't have proper money for a publicist for long term, I mean, publicists are like a couple thousand dollars a month. And when you're releasing a record, you want to have a good, you know, multi-month press plan for how you're going to, you know, sneak out the first single, then the second single, then the real release, then you're going to go on tour. And ideally, you have representation for each step of that so that you can do premieres with notable notable publications, you can get reviews, you know, all of that really comes from a publicist. I mean, you can do your best to do it on your own, but it's very, very hard. So major kudos to every artist out there who represents themselves. But, you know, think, things like that, you know, that really costs money. And then, you know, going on tour, are they going on tour in their sedan that they drive around or do they need to get a van? Do they need to rent equipment? Do they need a tour manager? What kind of merch are they having? I mean, it's a, it's a tremendously expensive thing to be a recording and performing artist. And ideally when you have representation from a manager and or a label, that entity is contributing financially. And I wasn't in a position to significantly contribute. That's really interesting. I appreciate that answer because I just had no idea. And (laughs) in the span of 105 words, give or take, you gave me a very illuminating answer. Uh, So you're at Orchard and you're starting Red Dust and you're crushing it on the artist fan synergy experiences. What happens from there? Yeah, so... I am living in New York. I'm doing Orchard. I'm doing Red Dust. I'm generally enjoying those things. But um, my job at the Orchard was very creatively fulfilling, but it wasn't very challenging, at least at the time, you know. And I also hate living in New York. (laughs) I hated it so much. And so I was freezing my ass off in my freezing apartment in February. And uh, basically decided that I wanted to move to the West Coast. And I didn't want to move straight to L.A. because I figured I would eventually move to L.A. and work at a label again. And I just didn't want to do that right away. So I had never been to San Francisco or the Bay Area, but I decided that that's where I was moving. And so I started looking for jobs. And I was not in a rush. I had basically decided in February that I was going to stay in New York looking for jobs through the end of the summer. And if I got to September and I still didn't have a job, I was just going to do it. I was going to move and figure it out when I got here. So over the course of the next three months or so, I applied to like four or five jobs, nothing too crazy, just slowly putting out the feelers. And I happened upon in, I think May of that year, I happened upon a fresh job listing at Pandora for an artist marketing associate, I think is the level that I came in at. And this role was basically product marketing and um, evangelism for Pandora's artist marketing platform, which is a suite of tools to help artists promote their music. And I hadn't, honestly used Pandora in a couple of years yeah, and I, I didn't remember, know. I remember when Amanda first told me uh, when she and I started dating that you worked there and I was like, huh, I really haven't thought of Pandora since 
I signed up for Skype in 2012 or 13. No, not Skype. Yeah, oh, Spotify. 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 I mean. Spotify. Yep. Yeah. That, that, that was a yeah. that, that was a slip of the tongue right there. Um, yeah, and, that was and, a... <laughs> and, and so, you know, it, it's it's interesting to me because I, I don't think a lot of people, uh, you yourself, when you were applying to this job, had been aware of Pandora's work on the artist's side of things in in terms of their marketing. Yeah, I mean, I had I had been a Pandora user for a long time. Like, it's I it's loved a lot it. Of it was amazing. That, like, yeah, and it's like what we put on for parties in college and that sort of thing. Exactly. But I didn't I didn't know a lot about artist marketing, and to be fair, it was brand new. <laughs> the The whole artist marketing platform on Pandora at the time had only been launched for a couple of months. So I probably, you know, saw like Pandora launches AMP and didn't think anything of it. But this job description was just describing me. It was just describing everything that I like in a job. And I charmed uh, once aside, again. I, I mean, the, the timing was unreal. And I pulled aside my former boss at the orchard who I was not working for anymore. And I was like, hey, so I'm thinking I want to move to the West Coast. And I saw this listening that just went up at Pandora and I, I'm really interested in it. And she was like, Oh, you know, that's great. I know the guy who's hiring that position. I know one of the other people who's on the interview panel. Let me give him a quick little call. So that's she, awesome. Yeah. So she helped me get the foot in the door. Um, and I'm, once I got the job, I had like a two week window to abandon my life in New York and move to Oakland, California and start this job. So I did that. And I worked at Pandora for about four years, and um, you I ended up crushing it moved. there. Like you, you were. It was awesome. <laughs> you, I remember how proud Amanda was of you, and <laughs> because because you were in a situation, she actually just got a three-year memory on Instagram or you know the photo app on your phone, saying that mm-hmm. on this day three years ago she was in. Miami with Casey and I think it was for when she, when you were down like when she was down there with you and it, it might be a different um no it was yeah I got that same reminder <laughs> and, you know the, the idea being that you were flying around the country I mean sometimes almost like you were on tour weeks and end giving presentations explaining to large groups of people um you know your expertise in in these sorts of techniques that Pandora was offering, and like you were legit a big deal in that regard. I did a lot of evangelism on behalf of the artist marketing platform and Pandora and the relationships that they had with artists, and it was pretty awesome. I mean, I was all over the country. Um, I did get to do one trip to Paris. Um, so cool. And, and helping helping artists, you know, I really felt like I was making a, a legitimate impact on the marketing opportunities that every artist had, you know, it wasn't something that was only available to the big superstars. It was, you know, I, I went to things like the CD baby conference and spoke to all the independent musicians about their opportunities. And it was a very uh, rewarding experience that I had. And you were just so in the thick of the music industry business side of things and very much so <laughs> what what did your four years 
what's your sense after four years of doing that about the music industry? And because my understanding is that when you switched to your last job, which was much more event space and there was a music component of it, you you had had enough of of being in the music industry. I'm curious if you could unpack that a little bit. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that I had enough of being in the music industry because I was still working in live music. Um, but I certainly solidified my feeling that I actually wanted to be one step removed from artists most of the time. Um, you know, early in my career, like I mentioned, I, I, my real dream was to be an artist manager. But after my time being an artist manager and working at the Orchard and working at Pandora and, and, and sort of having those interactions with artists, being an artist manager is extremely demanding. You are not just their manager. You are their parent, you're their partner, you're their therapist, you're their assistant. Like you are on call for this person 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And there are many artists who are absolutely lovely, but there are a lot of artists who expect a lot from their managers. And so what I think I, my biggest takeaway from the time at Pandora was that I loved helping artists and it was great that I could do that through music tech, you know, through tools that artists and their teams use. So that's sort of been for the last five years now, what I'm seeing as my niche. I like that. And, you know, I've known you for got almost, almost two years now and being an artist, artist's therapist does not seem like something that you're particularly interested in doing, but giving artists a suite of tools to, help them reach a wider audience and be better at their jobs definitely does seem like something that I could see you being excited about. Yeah, that's more my bag. <laughs> very, very cool. And I mean, that that sort of charts from your time at Lush to your, your <laughs> new job uh, starting Tuesday, which do you have an idea of what your onboarding is going to be like? Uh, do you have a set schedule yet for Tuesday? I do not have a set schedule. Um, I think, you know, it's an early startup. I'm going to have a lot of very varied responsibilities. And as part of my interview process, I put together a bunch of hypothetical plans. So I think on Tuesday and for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be doing a lot of learning and a lot of pressure testing to see if the hypothetical plans that I put together could actually be real. And overall, I think that my new job is going to be really similar to what I was doing at Pandora, which is extremely exciting to me because I loved that. That's great. And, you know, we're sitting here at the end of April right now. New York is tentatively going to try to open up on May 15th, though I imagine here in the city that date is going to be pushed back. Uh, what's the the timeline for citizens in the Bay Area as you understand it? So a while back, maybe a, a month or six weeks ago, they said May 3rd, and they haven't officially updated that yet, but the mayor of San Francisco, um, Mayor Breed, on Friday said that that is, quote, very likely pushing back for another few weeks to a month. So I'm sure this week they're going to make the call of what our new date is because it's 
this isn't happening in a week, you know, I think we still have at least another few weeks ahead of us. And so it is weird starting a new job in quarantine. I'm a little weirded out by that, but just got to take it in stride. You know, it's much better than the alternative, not having one to start. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I am just still so impressed about the way you were able to manufacture this turnaround. And as your sister says, there is nothing more Heather Rose Ellis than <laughs> than being laid off during a pandemic and immediately finding a new and better job uh, in the span of uh, just a couple weeks. Um, the, yeah. one, the one last thing I do want to ask you to kind of build on all the stuff we've been talking about, uh, what opportunities do you think are out there uh, for artists um, who have had all their tour dates canceled or postponed um, that, you know, mm-hmm. aren't able to interact with fans? You know, if you were um, co- you know, contacted by an artist and saying, hey, Heather, um, you know, what should I be doing with my time? Uh, what what yeah. advice would you give them? That's a really great question because obviously there's there are so many things that have become inaccessible, but there are also a lot of things that are getting created in this kind of time of darkness. So, I mean, obviously the fans are the support system right now. And so I would recommend that an artist trying to make money right now goes above and beyond what they normally do, even if it's outside of their comfort zone to engage with fans. I'm always a huge fan of, not to say fan 400 times, but I'm always very (laughs) supportive of artists who are willing to kind of establish a personal relationship with their fan base um, where you, for example, you know, challenge the fans. Like if you guys are able to do X, Y, Z, I will do this thing. And creating those types of interactive challenges with fans right now, I think are really positive where it's like, if you guys can help me raise this much money, I will do something. And it has to obviously be something that they care about, whether because it's like crazy and funny, like I've seen a band be like, if you guys do this, we'll all shave our heads. Something, you know, just something that's engaging like that. So I think that that type of thing is good. Mobilize your fan base. Also, of course, play virtual shows as much as you possibly can. And the plug that I will say for this, which I think a lot of artists aren't thinking about partner with a local venue to play a show because venues are struggling immensely right now. They don't have alternate income, you know, all of their money comes from live shows and the bar tab at live shows. And the longer we're shut down and staying out of these venues, the more venues we're going to see not come back at the end of all of this. And these are, I'm talking about, you know, iconic venues in every city and town around the world. They are all in jeopardy right now. So I would highly recommend that if there's an artist or if there's a venue in your town and you are an artist and you want to play virtual, virtual shows, reach out to that venue, say, you know, I, I'm doing a weekly show. I would love to partner with you. Let's figure this out and try to keep those venues open. Because when this is all over, if you have nowhere to play, we're right back where we started. You know, we've got to keep the venues open. So that would be my little plea to help the whole industry stay healthy. 
I love that so much in large part because it inspired me to tomorrow I'm now going to reach out to all the venues where I serve as an auctioneer and see just oh, how good they're idea. doing and yes. strengthen relationships in, in that way because yes. I, I hadn't really thought of that angle specifically before I had my heart had gone out to everyone who worked at the venue especially the the folks who work in the service end of things they tend to be a little bit older um, I think uh, you know a, a lot are from immigrant backgrounds and you know I just I can't imagine how how terrifying the last six weeks have been especially for those who've been living uh, paycheck to paycheck uh, leading up to it and those paychecks just disappeared so what yeah, a I just I feel inspired Great, great I'm answer. Glad. Good, I'm glad. Keep the venues open, especially the independent venues that don't have money coming from a bigger company. <clears throat> Live Nation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're not getting big corporate money, you're having a hard time right now. <laughs> well, Heather, I just know that everybody is so proud of you, and we're so excited to see what this new endeavor uh, will bring. And the, the folks who took the chance to bring you on they are so lucky and so smart and i think that they are the ones who are going to be charmed uh because you bring that everywhere you go thank you i am i am very excited and kind of blown away and mystified about how this all happened but i feel extremely lucky and fortunate to to be in the situation and i kind of can't wait to get started even though it's going to be weird starting from you know my kitchen table well i know you're going to crush it uh give my love to carlos and i'm sure we'll be talking very soon this week i'm sure we will thank you so much for having me all right take care <laughs> bye bye